Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And for a second, I thought I heard... Heard what? In this power, I send to every household this message. I got a message on the radio. Jay talking. I know that you can talk. Bradley J. Listen up. WBZ. Radio. News Radio 1030. WBZ, you are Jay talking. We're with Anthony Samarco, as I told you we would be. Yes, the Anthony Samarco, Boston's favorite historian. Tonight, we are talking about Christmas traditions and Anthony's book, Christmas Traditions in Boston. Welcome to the program, Anthony Samarco. Thank you very Wasn't much. Isn't a professional introduction? It was always like usual, perfectly professional. Okay, great. <laughs> so uh, how have you been since we last met? Very good. I had a very lovely Thanksgiving, and of course now we're in the uh, joyous Christmas season. Our trees are up and decorations. It's really quite fun. How have you been? I, have, I am well. I've been walking and, and seeing the Boston that you talk about when you come in here. Well, it's funny. This evening, uh, I did check Facebook, and I saw some of your postings of ice skating on the Boston Common Frog Pond, and I thought to myself, wow, that's incredible. Of course, there was no snow, but the ice itself seemed perfectly frozen. It People did. seemed very happy. They and did. That's nice. Uh, to clarify, it was a video of not me skating. It was a video of others skating. Yes. I'm not a good skater. No, neither it's not I. my strength. <laughs> and uh, it's... A lot of folks not very good at it out there on the ice. One girl went kerblam right in front of me. I thought, gee whiz, that's not good. Well, I did it when I was a teenager and in my early college years, but I thought it didn't really look very different than it did 50 years ago. That's the season, and people not only go downtown Boston to see the lights and things of that sort, but the common seemed really active and alive at it that did. hour. It was fun. Well, I, I do want to say I... I'm pleased with the de- the tree decorations this year on the commons. In the past, I've been critical. I didn't think it, they were very good, but they seem much better this year. Lots and lots of trees. I was actually trying to figure out how many trees they had put lights on. My guess is it's over 100, but I, I could be wrong. It, can you give a quick history of the frog pond? Do you, do you know anything? Well, of course you know about it. Everybody calls it the frog pond, but... It's just an area that was depressed within the common itself. And even in the period of the 18th and 19th century, it was where much of the cattle and the sheep that was actually grazed on Boston Common would actually water. And, you know, by the area of the early 20th century, it was actually something that would be drained and created into what is today truly the frog pond, which has actually an embankment on all sides It maintains itself as both water, which is really almost like a swimming pool because they allow the children to actually wade with fountains and things of that sort in the warm weather. But in the winter, it's actually frozen over. And I have to admit, both Mayor Walsh and Mayor Menino previously had created this into something with a little pavilion that had this little house that would serve either hot cocoa or hot coffee and encourage people to actually use the Boston Common for ice skating in the winter months. 
This is something that was done even at the turn of the 20th century. And to use the common after dark was something that was a little bit of a situation that might have been difficult. And I think now, because the photographs that you posted showed so many young people, it has become a destination over the last decade or two. So the frog pond went that gamut of a place where animals who once grazed on the common water to today, that's become this place that truly is a place that actually has people of all walks of life. I'm so glad that we didn't get the Olympics and they're not going to change the shape of the Boston Common to have beach volleyball. That was, to me, a travesty. volleyball. Well, I think in a lot of ways the Common is something that has a great history. And the Frog Pond itself was named because people don't realize Boylston Street was known as um, Frog Lane. And during the 18th century, it was the edge of the marshes of the Back Bay. So, of course, frogs predominated the area. So the Frog Pond was a place that had many frogs in the 18th century. So the Frog Pond name evolved out of that. Right, the waterfront, Boylston was one edge of it, and then swung around, Charles Street was was a, another edge. It was the edge, and that was where the rope walks were located. Throughout the latter part of the 18th and early 19th century, rope walks, which were low one-story buildings that would have rope actually wound in these buildings, was one of the least desirable areas because it backed up onto the Back Bay marshes. But by the early part of the 1820s, because Beacon Street was actually laid out as the mill dam connecting Boston and Brookline, that area became very valuable, and the city of Boston began to buy out the rope walks. And eventually we saw the creation and opening in 1837 of the Public Garden. Before we get into the... Your, your book, which is already sold out, and you're waiting for more of them, right? Well, this is the funny thing. Uh, Christmas traditions in Boston, I have numerous lectures during the month of December. And last evening, I was in Walpole. But to give you an example, last week, I went the gamut from Woburn Historical Society, the Milton Council on Aging, uh, Wakefield Historical Society. Um, I did lectures so often, and there were seven just last week, that people seem to be fascinated with this because it's a shared memory that we all have, whether or not we were raised in Boston or the stories that we've heard from our parents and grandparents. Christmas Traditions in Boston is a wonderful compilation that goes the gamut from the 17th century when Christmas was banned in Boston through to the 19th and 20th century when we had everything from the Boston Common decorated with not just electric lights on the trees, but the nativity crash, as well as the chapel and small tableaus sit around the edge and perimeter of the common, the enchanted village of St. Nicholas, and, of course, things such as the decorated department stores. So back in 1659, you had the Puritans. So folks showed up in 1620, the pilgrims. That means 20, 39 years later, Chris, uh, Christmas was banned. Yes. And on what grounds was it banned? Well, you had to realize there were two distinct groups. There were the pilgrims called the Separatists who settled Plymouth Bay Colony in 1620. But Boston was settled by Puritans settling Massachusetts Bay Colony. So these two were separate but equal. They were both settled by Englishmen. And in that period, Boston itself arose in some ways as a Puritan commonwealth. They called themselves in some ways a utopia upon a hill, which was the Tri-Mount. 
And during their period of time, Puritans themselves, though they were members of the Church of England, wanted to purify the church from within. So as members of the Church of England, which is Anglicanism, they themselves wanted to evolve in some ways, ways that excluded uh, crucifixes, incense, the stations of the cross. And what they did was to pare back the religion to a point where it became almost orthodox Calvinism. And in that period, they themselves said that no one should celebrate Christmas because it was purported to be a pagan holiday, that even the ancient Romans had celebrated Christmas 2,000 years previously, which is true. But the whole idea is they not only deterred it by actually saying that you would be fined five shillings, which I have a little broadside shown in the book, which was a considerable sum of money, but they also said in some ways that the ministers and the ruling elders of each of these communities would deter people from either feasting or even having games and jovial times on Christmas Day. And in 1659, the Great and General Court of Massachusetts, which was the presiding judicial system, actually banned it legally. So it was something that people looked at as not only necessary because people were enjoying Christmas, they were having feasts, they were actually enjoying a dram of rum or maybe hard cider. A dram of rum. A dram of I'm rum. I'm going to use that phrase from now on. <laughs> I hope so. People were enjoying it. And in the book, I have these wonderful illustrations that actually show a group of young men playing Skittles, which was a ball game, in front of a tavern as they're admonished by a Puritan divine. And in that way, sometimes you began to realize that it was something that was publicly noticed, that they said that the observation of Christmas is deemed a sacrilege, and the exchanging of gifts and greetings, dressing in fine clothing, feasting, and similar satanical practices are hereby forbidden with the offensible fine of five shillings. So we saw the people such as the Reverend Richard Mather, who was the minister of the Dorchester Church, as well as Samuel Sewell, who was a minister and ancestor as well, as well as Increase Mather, the son of Mather, were people that actually talked to the Puritans and said to them point blank that any of this is not just a sacrilege, but it's something that actually perpetuated the pagan ways. And they wanted people in that instance to actually stop. And they did. It was something that was banned, and by actually fining people, five shillings would be the equivalent of roughly uh, a half a dollar maybe at that time. But that was a considerable sum of money, and people themselves did. Was that like 100 bucks now? It probably is even a little bit more if you think of what the income would have been at that time. Mm -hmm. um, by 1688, there was the Glorious Revolution. And we saw that not only was James II deposed as the king because, of course, of his Roman Catholicism, we saw his daughter Mary, who had married William of Orange, ascending the throne of England. And in that instance, King William and Queen Mary themselves in 1689 were actually to become the king and the queen. And one of their edicts was a greater liberality of something that allowed people to not only have religious tolerance, but a more understanding aspect to the British Commonwealth. And during that period, one of the things was religion. And they established a church here in Boston known as King's Chapel. 
King's Chapel was literally the King's Chapel, and they placed not only the Bible, but they also had church vestments, church silver, and eventually the church at the corner of what is today Tremont Street and School Street would represent a different form of religion from that of the Puritans. Though the Puritans in 1630 were still members of that church and wanted to purify it from within. So that liberality of something of the aspect of religion made it easy for people to do. It's nice to see an attempt at least to have a nice, uh, to have a Christmas not fair but a Christmas in in the at government center a little bit of well in the last few years Mayor Walsh has actually set up these things of course ice skating and when we're in London especially during the Christmas season there are all these as this woman mentions pop-up fairs on the South Bank, we were surprised to see these little Christmas villages, and there was skating, and there was all sorts of food and different drinks and things of that sort, and we were really impressed because it was a little bit too cold to be out at night, but in that instance, it was beautifully illuminated, beautiful trees, and not only adults, but children, and the children are the real reason for the holiday season, it seems. But a lot of times in this book, what I try to do in some ways is, yes, of course, talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason for Christmas, the whole aspect of how it evolved from the 17th through the 20th century. My chapter, which is called A Very Boston Christmas, touches upon the handbell ringers on Beacon Hill. And I thought it was the most fascinating thing. I buy photographs on eBay of anything that I think that's interesting that pertains to Boston because I might use it in a book or something that's in the back of my mind for a book proposal. But eventually, after the book is done, everything goes to the University of Massachusetts. They have a special archive that actually maintains all of the things that I've used in the 80-plus books that I've done. But I found this one photograph, which is on page 29, and it's of Margaret Shercliffe, a woman who actually was not only a proficient handbell ringer, but she also rang the bells of the Old North Church where her family worshipped. And the photograph shows four of her six children sitting there, dour faces, but actually with handbells. And they would (laughs) ring in unison these wonderful tunes that would go the gamut of jingle bells to old little town of Bethlehem. But it was something that would evolve in the period of the 1930s and 40s that her friends would actually go out to Beacon Hill, especially on Christmas Eve, and stand in the doorways of family homes and actually do these impromptu concerts it became an almost indispensable part of the Christmas traditions in Boston, which was handbell ringing and music. I, I was never a good handbell ringer. I, I am only a hand ringer. <laughs> I gather. Now, uh... Handbells are charming. They actually have a melodious tune, and it's really quite nice. But a lot of times you had to realize, here was Margaret Shercliffe, a woman in a photograph, which is on page 32, it shows her in a very sensible wool overcoat and a wool scarf around her head, but all of her friends are draped in minks and sables and ocelot as they stand in the doorway ringing the bells. A lot of times they would start off doing these wonderful tunes, and not only, of course, One Horse Open Sleigh, but they'd also do Little Old Little Town of Bethlehem. But the story was that because Beacon Hill had open house on Christmas Eve, 
every house had a bowl of punch. Usually it was an alcoholic punch. So people not only warmed up and soothed their throat with the alcoholic punch, but by 10 o'clock they were standing in the street. By that point, singing "Roll Out the Barrel." Ah, Dude, <laughs> so, is, is there any uh, are there any vestiges of this open house on Christmas on Beacon Hill now? Do, are well, there tours or do, do people open their homes? No, they don't. They don't open the houses, but they do actually perpetuate the things that Mrs. Ralph Adams Cram had suggested in 1907, which was to place a illuminated wax taper in every window on Beacon Hill. And a lot of times people still maintain that on Christmas Eve between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. It's charming. I remember when I was very young, in my 20s, when basically just out of undergraduate school, I would actually wander around Boston before midnight mass. And I would say to myself, what a wonderful thing to see, not just the illumination of what it really must have looked like in the 19th century and early 20th century, but also to begin to realize that was something that now is over a century old in a tradition. Yes, it's done, but you also realize that the churches maintain that musical tradition. And of course, the masses, whatever it is, the church, have these wonderful things at midnight. And it's something that's a very nice thing to see passed from one generation to the other. Victorian Christmas in Boston. That must, must have been something at that time. It was. And you had to realize that it was in 1856 that Christmas Day became a state holiday in Massachusetts. It was something that really was celebrated previous to that time, but it became an official holiday. And people would celebrate it not just with food, wine, merriment, but also Christmas traditions that included things such as not just mass, a church, but sleigh riding and, of course, going to visit family and friends. But one of the most indispensable traditions is Christmas cards. And I've already begun receiving Christmas cards. I mean, I believe the first one arrived the weekend of Thanksgiving. And I thought, what a nice gesture, because I don't send them until just about the third or fourth day before Christmas, because in my estimation, that's kind of the Christmas time for me. But I looked at the Christmas card in this book, and I realized Louis Prang was the man who introduced the Christmas card to the United States. It had been known in England in the 1840s and 50s, but he created a factory in Roxbury, Massachusetts that was a lithographic factory, and he produced some of the best cards that were ever available in the Victorian period. And they were, yes, of course, angels, you know, with wonderful trumpets sounding the fact that Jesus Christ is born on Christmas Day. But they were also doing things that had wonderful renditions of women descending a staircase with Aladdin's lamp. That was designed by Elihu Vedder, a very well-known artist at that time. And Prang would put up a competition for both professional and non-professional artists that would compete for an award of $2,000 in the 1870s and 1880s. And at that point, he would then publish that card. And his card... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's were not inexpensive. At the time, they were a dollar apiece, which in this estimation would probably be the equivalent of about... $20? Well, 15 to $20, yeah. yes. A tremendous sum of money, but they were a tremendous amount of work. And in that period, he himself would have over 100 men and women working in his lithographic factory, which still stands in Roxbury. His house still stands on Center Street, a Roxbury meeting house hill. And in some ways, is a great example of this whole idea of the Christmas card industry that would eventually spur on such places as Rustcraft, Hallmark Cards, as well as a plethora of other publishers. But in this book, I have things that have cards from Norman Rockwell and Tasha Tudor, as well as even Salvador Dali. I noticed that. Isn't that fun? That was a card that was sent to me many, many years ago. And I looked at it and I thought, this was fascinating. I mean, it was one of my more outre friends, but in a lot of ways, it was a fun card. So I had collected cards over the years, along with all sorts of things on Louis Prang and Christmas traditions, with the intention someday of maybe doing an article. But with Alan Sutton, this book actually came to fruition, and it did so in less than two months. The funny thing was, I put this together and wrote the captions and the introduction within a very short period of time. It was so difficult to distill into 96 pages so much information and so many illustrations that in a lot of ways it was something when it came out, I was very pleased. And it was beautifully done, beautifully illustrated with color photographs that chronicled not just my memories, but I bet it's shared memories of all of us as Bostonians. Slightly aside, why is Avenue Louis Prang near Longwood? Did he live over there or was this, right? Well, that's that's where that is, right? Well, Louis Prang actually lived in Roxbury, as I mentioned, on what is today uh, Center yeah. Street at Roxbury Meeting House Hill. But, of course, he was such an important artist at that period of time. Louis Prang didn't just do a Christmas card, but he also was somebody who was probably best known for his color chart. Louis Prang actually had done all sorts of things for art education in the public schools in the latter part of the 19th and early 20th century. And Avenue Louis Prang actually was named for him, but not every street in Boston is near where either the person lived or where their factory was located. They needed to name a street. And but do you remember when we were children when we had these wonderful color charts and how green and blue would turn yeah. into a different... That was Prang's theory of color evolution. And in the 19th century, you had to realize that a lithograph was something that would actually have a multitude of colors. But the colors were created by carving a stone for every single imprint of that color. So one would press the yellow and then do a stone that pressed the red and the third stone that would press the green. So that when eventually the picture was completed, that lithograph had 10 different colors. And in that way was something that was an expensive commodity to produce, but it was probably the best available. So he did not just Christmas cards, he did lithographs of scenes of great paintings. He did things such as what Carrier Knives had done previously as prints, but he created art for the middle class. And 
Avenue Louis Prang perpetuates his name. He's buried at Forest Hill Cemetery, and he's probably one of the most important artists of 19th century America that created something that people sometimes forget the importance of his contribution. There's an interesting photo of a tabletop tree with a fence around it, and in the within the fence, there are Noah's Ark animals. Yes. That's interesting that they would pair Christmas it, and Noah's Ark. It's very interesting. In the 19th century, you had to realize that in some instances, Charles Fallen, who was a German immigrant who actually came to Harvard College to teach Germanic studies and the German language, was somebody who introduced the Christmas tree to Boston. He was somebody in many instances after his marriage to Eliza Lee Cabot, a very wealthy Brahmin Bostonian, would have a child named Charlie. And the three of them would actually decorate their house like many Germans had done in his youth. And in that instance, it was something that was quite important. So it wasn't just a three-foot-tall tabletop tree, but you would also see a reticulated fence with, of course, Noah's Ark. Christmas was a religious holiday. And in that period, Noah's Ark was something that, again, was part of the biblical stories. So it wasn't just the fact that one was telling the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, but one might actually tell children stories of all sorts of biblical aspects, including Noah's Ark. And Noah's Ark was something that we would see in these prints of the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. It would somewhat change due to one artist named Thomas Nast. And Thomas Nast was somebody who was a political cartoonist, especially during the Civil War. This is on page 27. And I I say that as a political cartoonist in the 19th century, he was considered to be the father of the American cartoon. He was associated with the New York Illustrated News, Frank Leslie's Illustrated News, and Harper's Weekly, and his cartoons had a wide appeal to the public. And though his Christmas cartoons were charming as a political cartoonist, he would also wield more influence than any other artist of the 19th century, because in that instance he created what he called Thomas Nast's Christmas Drawings for the Human Race. He took a man by the name of St. Nicholas, and he created him as Santa Claus. And Santa Claus, the jovial man with white hair and a flowing beard, in a red velvet suit trimmed with white fur, was somebody that had now become, thanks to Thomas Nast, a man who would actually descend a chimney to actually leave toys for good boys and good girls. But Nast also did illustrations that showed children actually getting coal in their stockings. So in a lot of ways, you wanted to be as good as you possibly could, but in many ways, the idea of having coal in one's stocking was actually a tremendous burden for many children to bear. Was the nativity scene something that was prominent right from the get-go, or did that come about later? It really did come up a little bit later. In the period of the 1880s and 90s, one began to see these life-size nativity crash, especially at churches. In this book, I have wonderful photographs that show them not only in front of Trinity Church or Copley Square, but also Our Lady of Perpetual um, Help, which was actually on Mission Hill in Roxbury. There was one also in front of the Cathedral of the Holy Cross in the South End. So it was the latter part of the 19th century, but it wasn't just religious. There was one erected on Boston Common. 
And that was probably the largest of all because these were life-size uh, figures of both Mary, Joseph, and the baby, the three kings on camels, shepherds, and sheep. And these were things that were not only to commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ in the manger at Bethlehem, but they were things that we used on the common. And by the 1950s, Jordan Marsh had a life-size nativity crash that was on the parapet on the Summer Street side of the, of the department store. Anthony, today I happen to be in the Parker House. I, as, as I walk the length of the city, when every once in a while I think I'll, I'll just go in someplace and I happen to go in the Parker House today. And I see in the book that Parker House plays quite uh, significantly in the history of Christmas in Boston. It does. I mean, the Parker House is a place everybody thinks of not only the fact of the Parker House roll and Boston cream pie, which is wonderful because they are synonymous with it. But, you know, Harvey Parker created what was to become one of the finest hotels in Boston in the 19th century. Originally, it was just on School Street, but eventually by the latter part of the 19th century, a large hotel was built that extended it along Tremont Street. But in the 1840s and 1850s, it was not only something that had an a la carte menu, which allowed people to eat everything from meats and poultry and game, as well as even the most wonderful assortment of desserts. It was. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The place that attracted people as tourists to Boston. And you can't think of Boston without thinking of tourists today. But in the 1840s, it was something that was really quite unusual. And one of those that came to Boston was Charles Dickens. Now, Dickens was a very well-known author from London. He actually was an immensely popular novelist. And he came to Boston and stayed at a suite at the Parker House because in 1842, he was said in some ways to actually come to speak about his new book, A Christmas Carol. And A Christmas Carol is something that has been immortalized, both on screen as well as in plays. It was something that talked about Ebenezer Scrooge and, of course, you know, the visitation of the three spirits. But in that way, Tickner and Fields, who was Dickens's Boston publisher, wanted to actually have him on a tour. And by coming to Boston, he did these readings, which were actually at um, the Tremont Temple Baptist Church, that had over 2,000 people every night that he spoke. Well, he came at that period, and not only did he say that he actually enjoyed it, but he said that Boston is what I would have the whole United States to be, because in that instance, not only was he accepted with alacrity, but A Christmas Carol became one of the most important books. Over the next two years, after 1842, Dickens treated the Parker House as his home away from home, and he practiced for his immensely popular readings in front of a large mirror in his suite. So the Parker House wasn't just a luxury hotel with one of the fabled dining rooms, which I love to this day, 
But it was also something that had a little bit of a Christmas tradition in Boston, and Dickens himself would stay there not just in 1842, but again in 1867. He created something that I utilized in the book itself. But he was one of many people. There were also people such as Lydia Maria Child. She herself became an immensely popular writer. She wrote The American Frugal Housewife that touched upon the aspects of not only, and I I love the secondary dedication, it says dedicated to those who are not ashamed of economy, which was something that touched upon the middle-class housewife of the 19th century, but she was the daughter of Converse Francis, the man who invented the Medford Cracker, which was a pilot cracker. But she herself would eventually go on to write a ditty that was set to tune, and it was called Over the Bridge and Through the Woods to Grandfather's House We Go. Wow. And that was Grandfather's House, which is still on South Street in Medford. It's owned by Tufts University. But it was a great example of her family's horse-drawn sleigh going across the Craddock Bridge at Medford Square and then eventually going through the woods to Grandfather's House. But then you also had her near neighbor, a man by the name of James Lord Pierpont. And Pierpont, who was a somewhat near-to-well, his father was the minister of the Unitarian Church in Medford, and ironically, he was also the uncle of J.P. Morgan, the financier. He was somebody who actually composed a tune called One Horse Open Sleigh, or something that we call Jingle Bells. Wow. And that was done at Simpson's Tavern in Medford Square, the only place that was a piano forte. And in that instance, with a libation in one hand and a hand that tinkled out the tune of Jingle Bells, he created something that immortalized how we thought of the horses with sleigh bells, especially in the winter season. So each of these people, whether it's Dickens or Child or or Pierpont, The names might not necessarily be totally familiar to us, but their tunes and books are. Well, thanks to you, more and more they're becoming familiar to us because you hear them from time to time as they overlap in the different subjects we cover. So as I listen to you talk, it seems as though Boston had a lot to do with shaping how the entire United States viewed Christmas. To what degree did Boston shape American Christmas. Well, don't forget, every community did something. If it was a Christian community, it would do something. Boston in the 19th century was evolving as a place that embraced different people's religious as well as ethnic traditions. So here was Charles Fallen, a German immigrant that introduced the Christmas tree. And then, of course, Italians might introduce the Feast of the Seven Fish. I dedicate the book to my paternal grandparents, uh, Luigi and Rose Gianelli Samarco. And what I tried to do in some ways was to remember the stories of Christmas when I was a child, which was the Feast of the Seven Fish. It included everything from, you know, lobster and shrimp and smelts and as well as you know, linguine with clam sauce. It was a religious holiday for us and it was a fast because we couldn't eat meat. And I remember back when I was a very young child of going there and the wonderful merriment as well as beautiful lights and Christmas of seeing that. And it was something 50 or 60 years ago that really was something that was quite special. But each one of us have these special memories. And whether it's something that was introduced by our ethnic groups or religious groups, 
you begin to realize that Christmas traditions evolve because of all of us. So this is a book that's really shared memories and the memories that we made, our parents made, and our grandparents made. You mentioned Tasha Tudor. Yes. I'm interested to hear more about Tasha Tudor. Well, you know, Tasha Tudor is a fascinating character. She was born in Boston. She was a Brahmin. But her name was not Tasha Tudor. When she was born, she was Starling Burgess. Her father was a yacht designer, and her mother, Rosamund Tudor, was a portrait painter. But her grandfather was Frederick Tudor, who had actually cut ice and then sent it to India and the West Indies and made a fortune in the ice trade. Tudor Wharf maintains the name of the family. But the whole concept was she was somebody, after her parents' divorce, who became enamored of the period of the 1830s. And not only did she dress in the period, but eventually she built a house which had no central heating, and she cooked over an open fire. She dried her own herbs. She did all of her own baking as well as bread. And she wrote a series of books that were primarily about her dogs, corgis. <laughs> and the corgi She built, must have been a wild woman. She was really quite a fast. I never met her, but I've read her books, and I always assumed she must have been a very interesting person. Difficult, I'm sure, but very interesting. But in that period, she was somebody that wrote these books called Corgiville Cookbooks, and they're fascinating. I love them. But the funny thing was, she also did painting, and she did Christmas cards. And these were Christmas cards that evoked the period of the 19th century, and it will show a woman taking cookies out of an oven, along with her children, cats, and corgi dogs, all sitting around the fireplace, and you see in that distance shells of Canton and Nanking, China, and the wonderful stories that she created. So she was somebody that had, of course, the Brahmin tradition of Boston. She was greatly wealthy, but she was also somebody who chronicled the 19th century Christmas traditions of her family. And in that instance, you had people also like Norman Rockwell, and some of his things were just incredible. But a lot of people also don't realize that Joyce Hall, who created Hallmark Cards, was somebody who would actually have that wonderful little ditty when you care to send the very best as one of his artists, Winston Churchill. Oh. So in this book, I try to really chronicle not just Louis Prang in the 19th century, but Norman Rockwell, Tasha Tudor, and even Joyce Hall and Winston Churchill. When was Tasha Tudor alive again? I, I want to say from the period of about 1912 to about 1990. Wow. So someone one could have, if one had known, uh, wanted to, you could have met her at some point. Oh, yes, definitely. Wow. I, it's 1915 to 2008. No kidding. All right. Of course, we have to address the Jordan Marsh. Well, you know, funny thing is, the book on Jordan Marsh came out recently as well. And Jordan Marsh was founded in 1851 by Eben Jordan and Benjamin Marsh. It was a dry goods store. But by the period of the 1870s and 1880s, it evolved into a department store. It had 244 departments that went the gamut from men's clothing, women's clothing, children's clothing, household goods, furniture. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everything imaginable under one roof. And it was the New England's largest store. But by the 1950s, it became synonymous with Christmas because of Christmas traditions in Boston. It created the enchanted village of St. Nicholas. Now, the surprising thing was, after World War II, trade ties with Germany had been suspended. So by the late 1950s, Edward Richardson Mitten, who was the president of Jordan Marsh, wanted to reestablish ties because many of the things they had once imported came from Germany. So in 1958, he petitioned the government and eventually went to Germany and spoke to a man by the name of Hoffman, who actually had a company in Coburg, West Germany. This man's grandfather had made toys in the 19th century for the Duke of Coburg, but by the 1930s and 40s, they were making automated figures. And these automated figures were at amusement parks and department stores. And what Edward Richardson Mitten did was to commission 250 figures of men, women, and children, and every animal imaginable, to create the enchanted village of St. Nicholas. And between 1958 and 1959, he had created a marketing and advertising blitz so that when it opened on the day after Thanksgiving in 1959, there were 15,000 people in line to actually see the enchanted village. It was something that had 24 tableaus, and they went the gamut from a drawing room, a bakery, an ice cream shop, um, the schoolhouse, a glassblower shop, as well as the village jail. And when one walked on these walkways with stanchions, you could look into these village tableaus and see the automated figures moving in unison. And it was something that must have been mesmerizing, but enchanting as well. And during that period, of course, with so many people, Jordan Marsh realized that music was necessary. And what they did was to actually hire a trio from the Biltmore Hotel that was on Massachusetts Avenue to play Germanic music, and they dressed in lederhosen and Tyrolean hats. When they took their break, somebody played the organ and played, of course, Christmas carols. It was said that the first year brought in 175,000 people to see the Enchanted Village. And in that way, it was not just something that was popular, but it was something that an entire two generations of Bostonians would know and love. We realized that this was something that actually created so much publicity for Jordan Marsh that at least 40% of their average annual sales was just during the period between the day after Christmas and Little Christmas. So I think in a lot of ways, this was something that wasn't just a beloved Christmas tradition, really did spur on Jordan Marsh's profitability. In your book, there are two pictures of things referred to as a Hoffman-built, a Hoffman-built glassblower, a Hoffman-built schoolmaster. Can you talk about that? Well, Hoffman himself was the man who actually did this in Germany. And during that period, you began to realize Christian Hoffman himself was the third generation who made these 
automatons. And these were actually figures that could move. So if you were in the glassblower shop, you would actually watch this man, if he could, raise his hand to his lips and he would actually blow a Christmas ornament. And in that instance, it was something that was not only interesting, but it created that 19th century idea of a Germanic village. Well, it was so popular that in December of 1959, Look Magazine did an 18-page full-color advertisement. And it was something in a lot of ways that people thought of the Enchanted Village as something that was not only unique and special, but with live children watching in some ways the man blow the glass, as well as, of course, the baker make cookies and cakes, and, of course, the ice cream smith making things such as ice cream sundaes, it was really not only interesting, but it was chronicled not just for Boston, but the entire United States, because Look Magazine was read not only in Boston, Massachusetts, but San Francisco and California. And in that way, we began to see in some ways that Jordan Marsh, which eventually would expand and have 11 department stores throughout New England, was something in a lot of ways that was a trailblazer in creating these wonderful tableaus during the Christmas season. But it wasn't just Jordans. You had Jordan Marsh, Filene's, Gilchrist, Raymond's, Kennedy's. H.R. White. R.H. White. R.H. White. R.H. Stearns. You had Conrad and Chandler, C. Crawford Hollage, Ellen Slattery. Each of these department stores would also be decorated and with a beautiful illuminated facade, sometimes with you know, two or three stories of white electric lights, Santa Claus in the window, as well as, of course, the interiors that were beautifully decorated. Going to town was something that was not just special, but before the advent of the suburban shopping mall, one could normally get things in smaller neighborhoods as well as smaller towns, but going into Boston was magical, and it made people realize in some ways that it wasn't just the department stores. It was that wonderful tableau that one saw on the Boston Common. It was the fact that there would be people ringing bells for the Salvation Army, and that many times music itself would be piped through the department stores and heard on the streets. It was a joyful time. But the memories that we share about it come down to us today. So whether it was our parents or grandparents that took us to town, We now can tell our children and grandchildren the wonderful stories of Boston in the late 19th and 20th century. You've spoken about Enchanted Village a number of times during the time I've known you, and I never really have been able to get a grasp on how magical it was. But there are are photos in this book that give me, I think, an inkling, and it's really just difficult to describe verbally. You kind of need to see a picture to understand how awesome how outstanding it is i i'm looking at the picture with the sheep and the snowball and the, is that fun yes and you know how big how much of an area did this cover this enchanted well, you know village? the enchanted village was on the top floor of the annex now you had to realize jordan marsh was divided by avon street which no longer exists but it was opposite temple place today it's the site of the lafayette mall But in that instance, the annex was a building that on the ground floor not only had the bakery, but on the top floor had an open space. 
So the Enchanted Village was one of the many things that they had done. They also did an animated circus with Hoffman-built figures. They also did things such as a Civil War 100th anniversary commemoration. There was a car show, which I spoke about at the Lars Anderson Museum last month. So in a lot of ways, people realized that the NX display space was something that you could only access by the elevator. So you would ascend the seven flights And then, of course, when you arrived, you would then be there. And, of course, at the end of the Enchanted Village, there were elves that would give you candy canes as you waited in line to see Santa Claus. So at the end of that, you then had to descend the seven flights of the escalator. And, of course, why not stop off and look at clothing or furniture or the bakery? Because the cookies that were on display at the bakery tableau at the Enchanted Village had the same cookies for sale in the bakery. The real deal. The gift shop had the real glass ornaments that the glassblower shop showed you. It was not only a wonderful thing that was a gift to the people of Boston in 1959, but it was also something that you too could take something of that home with you. Whether it was a photograph of your child or grandchild sitting on Santa Claus's lap, or maybe it was actually a box of Christmas Germanic-inspired cookies or a box of Christmas ornaments for the tree. Each one of those things, though, perpetuated the memory that you had. And whether it was of the Enchanted Village or maybe the fact that today one still puts that Christmas ornament that you purchased after having seen it at the Enchanted Village on the tree, you remember that continuity of 50 or 60 years. There's an Enchanted Village now at Jordan's Furniture in Avon. Correct. To what degree is it well, the original Hoffman, similar? Well, the original Hoffman built were from the 1959 period. Eventually, we would see in the 1980s that it would be discontinued by, of course, Jordan's. And by the period of 1996, Macy's, of course, had gotten rid of it. The pieces that are at Jordan's Furniture in Avon, Massachusetts, are the pieces that Mayor Menino commissioned that would eventually see them at the Boston City Hall Plaza. And they date from the early 1990s. But of the original pieces, they disintegrated. I mean, at this point, they're over 60 years of age. But the idea was that they themselves were things that were really quite important. But today, the Enchanted Village, again, gives us and our children and grandchildren that wonderful story that we knew as children. But it's also the fact that Jordans has connected their name with that of Jordan Marsh. And it's not just the fact that one can see the Enchanted Village of St. Nicholas in Avon, but you can also stop by and purchase a half a dozen Jordan Marsh blueberry muffins. Anthony Samarco in his book, Christmas Traditions in Boston. Anthony's with us, and there's a section in there called Boston's Christmas Trees, or Christmas Trees of Boston. Well, you know, Christmas trees in the 19th century started off as tabletop trees, but in a lot of ways it was also the fact by the 20th century they became room-sized. In this book I have some, I think, fascinating pictures that actually show the Christmas trees themselves that were introduced by, of course, Charles Fallon. And Fallon himself, as I mentioned earlier, he was somebody who had come to this country and, you know, he basically taught at Harvard College. But in a lot of ways he eventually embraced the Unitarian faith and he became a minister. 
And I love the little pun because he became the minister of the fallen church. (laughs) And the fallen church is something that still exists in Lexington, Massachusetts. They still have a Christmas tree sale, and every tree actually has a little history of Charles Fallen on the tree itself. But in the latter part of the 19th century, you'd see these trees that were not only decorated with, of course, wax tapers, but they'd have everything from Christmas toys, dolls, little drums, balls for boys. Um, You'd have little pole toys, horses and sheep. And they would eventually in the 1860s and 1870s grow to what eventually became room-sized trees. In this book, I show not only the fact of the children in front of the trees, sometimes even five stories, uh, five feet in height, but by the period of 1900, they were entire room size, beautifully decorated, tinsel, electric lights, and of course the hand-blown ornaments, many of which came from Germany at that time, would just be incredible. So in some ways, the trees themselves became synonymous with the aspiring middle class, especially during the holidays, and they were always real trees. But by the period of the 1950s, they would actually even have trees that were made of silver. And during that period, there were aluminum trees that would actually have a revolving light that had four colors, and you would put that on, and it would revolve with an electric light bulb to illuminate the silver tree, which usually had single-colored light bulbs. And then that way, it was something that was totally different. It was a cool mod tree. We had a silver tree when I was a child. I was allergic to evergreens at that time. These trees were something that were unique and special, but they were also trees that sometimes were very simple. They had strung popcorn, strung cranberries. Maybe they had paper chains made from construction paper. There were special items saved year after year, and they actually had a memory. And not only did they actually go on the tree, but there could be a story that would then be told to children. And it was something that they too knew the story within a few years. So Christmas trees, which would be sold at every street corner, it seemed, throughout the city, was centralized at Faneuil Hall in the period of the early 20th century, would have the gamut of trees that, yes, was still tabletop, but even became room-sized trees. And there's a photograph on page 86 that shows some of the trees that were at least 9 or 10 feet in height, so they were for very large houses. So I was really quite fascinated to read about the history of the evolution of the Christmas tree in the 19th and early 20th century. Do you have a Christmas stocking with your name on it? I bet you do. I do. It's in storage. But the thing was, when I was a very young child, if one went to Jordan Marsh, not only did one see the Enchanted Village, but of course visit Santa Claus, you could then have a red velvet stocking with a little, it was felt, but it was supposed to be fur. And your name would be written in Elmer's glue, and then they would do sprinkles of silver uh, foil on it. And of course, my name was on it. You still have it? I still have it. It's somewhere, but um, I don't put it out so much. We have our trees up, um, evergreens are done on the outside of the property and things of that sort. We have a single candle in every window. The nativity crashes are up, and they're fun. We have a Hummel one, and we have a handmade one. 
But I also have my grandparents' Hummel, uh, my grandparents' nativity crèche that they had purchased in Paris, and they were made of chalk, and they're very small. So each of these things are really quite special. They, to me, represent something that I bring out every year, and I marvel at not only the fact that they represent something, and of course were owned by people that I love that are no longer with us, but they kind of represent that Christmas tradition of every year celebrating something that was not only a family event, but something that was a shared Bostonian event. I, I don't, the only meaningful Christmas item that I have that's been passed down is my, my grandmother was a knitter, as people were back in the day, and she knitted my father. She knitted everybody, everybody got a stocking, and so father got one, my mother later got one, but uh, I still have my father's, which says 1925 on it. That's lovely, yes. And I have one that's identical with my name. We all we all got them. And right. I have to remember to hang them up. Happily, the wool seems to be a kind that the moths don't like. But it's, one, you know, obviously 100% wool. I didn't have it's any lovely. fake stuff then. Thank you so much for coming in. And Thank congratulations you. on the great response on your book, Christmas Traditions in Boston. Right now, go to a bookstore and get it. What do you got planned for the Christmas season? Well, well, I actually have to work on Christmas Eve, but the thing is uh, we'll actually have friends at our house in Austerville. It's always wonderful to actually break bread and share a potent libation by the fireplace. But I think in a lot of ways Christmas is really quite fun. It's not just the fact of knowing people that we love and they're great to see, but talking with family and friends. Thank you very much. And perhaps... We might share a uh, strong libation, maybe at the Red Hat or something I like would that. love that. All right. SWBZ. Is the name of the family. But the whole concept was she was somebody after her parents' divorce who became enamored of the period of the 1830s. And not only did she dress in the period, but eventually she built a house which had no central heating and she cooked over an open fire she dried her own herbs. She did all of her own baking as well as bread. And she wrote a series of books that were primarily about her dogs, corgis. <laughs> and the corgi. She built, must have been a wild woman. She was really quite a fast. I never met her, but I've read her books. And I always assumed she must have been a very interesting person. Difficult, I'm sure, but very interesting. But in that period, she was somebody that wrote these books called Corgiville Cookbooks. And they're fascinating. I love them. But the funny thing was she also did painting and she did Christmas cards. And these were Christmas cards that evoked the period of the 19th century. And it will show a woman taking cookies out of an oven along with her children, cats, and corgi dogs all sitting around the fireplace. And you see in that distance shells of Canton and Nanking, China, and the wonderful stories that she created. So she was somebody that had, of course, the Brahmin tradition of Boston. She was greatly wealthy, but she was also somebody who chronicled the 19th century Christmas tradition. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No 
purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...of her family. And in that instance, you had people also like Norman Rockwell, and some of his things were just incredible. But a lot of people also don't realize that Joyce Hall, who created Hallmark Cards, was somebody who would actually have that wonderful little ditty when you care to send the very best, as one of his artists, Winston Churchill. Oh. So in this book, I try to really chronicle not just Louis Prang in the 19th century, but Norman Rockwell, Tasha Tudor, and even Joyce Hall and Winston Churchill. When was Tasha Tudor alive again? I, I want to say from the period of about 1912 to about 1990. Wow. So someone one could have, if one had known... Uh, it wanted to, you could have met her at some point. Oh, yes, definitely. Wow. I, it's 1915 to 2008. No kidding. All right. Of course, we have to address the Jordan Marsh. Well, you know, funny thing is, the book on Jordan Marsh came out recently as well. And Jordan Marsh was founded in 1851 by Eben Jordan and Benjamin Marsh. It was a dry goods store. But by the period of the 1870s and 1880s, it evolved into a department store. It had 244 departments that went the gamut from men's clothing, women's clothing, children's clothing, household goods, furniture, everything imaginable under one roof. And it was the New England's largest store. But by the 1950s, it became synonymous with Christmas because of Christmas traditions in Boston. It created the enchanted village of St. Nicholas. Now, the surprising thing was, after World War II, trade ties with Germany had been suspended. So by the late 1950s, Edward Richardson Mitten, who was the president of Jordan Marsh, wanted to reestablish ties because many of the things they had once imported came from Germany. So in 1958, he petitioned the government and eventually went to Germany and spoke to a man by the name of Hoffman, who actually had a company in Coburg, West Germany. This man's grandfather had made toys in the 19th century for the Duke of Coburg, but by the 1930s and 40s, they were making automated figures. And these automated figures were at amusement parks and department stores, And what Edward Richardson Mitten did was to commission 250 figures of men, women, and children and every animal imaginable to create the enchanted village of St. Nicholas. And between 1958 and 1959, he had created a marketing and advertising blitz so that when it opened on the day after Thanksgiving in 1959, there were 15,000 people in line to actually see the Enchanted Village. It was something that had 24 tableaus, and they went the gamut from a drawing room, a bakery, an ice cream shop, um, the schoolhouse, a glassblower shop, as well as the village jail. And when one walked on these walkways with stanchions, you could look into these village tableaus and see the automated figures moving in unison. And it was something that must have been mesmerizing, but enchanting as well. And during that period, of course, with so many people, Jordan Marsh realized that music was necessary. And what they did was to actually hire a trio from the Biltmore Hotel that was on Massachusetts Avenue to play Germanic music, and they dressed in lederhosen and Tyrolean hats 
When they took their break, somebody played the organ and played, of course, Christmas carols. It was said that the first year brought in 175,000 people to see the enchanted village. And in that way, it was not just something that was popular, but it was something that an entire two generations of Bostonians would know and love. We realized that this was something that actually created so much publicity for Jordan Marsh that at least 40% of their average annual sales was just during the period between the day after Christmas and Little Christmas. So I think in a lot of ways, this was something that wasn't just a beloved Christmas tradition, really did spur on Jordan Marsh's profitability. In your book, there are two pictures of things referred to as a Hoffman-built, a Hoffman-built glassblower, a Hoffman-built schoolmaster. Can you talk about that? Well, Hoffman himself was the man who actually did this in Germany. And during that period, you began to realize Christian Hoffman himself was the third generation who made these automatons. And these were actually figures that could move. So if you were in the glassblower shop, you would actually watch this man, if he could, raise his hand to his lips and he would actually blow a Christmas ornament. And in that instance, it was something that was not only interesting, but it created that 19th century idea of a Germanic village. Well, it was so popular that in December of 1959, Look Magazine did an 18-page full-color advertisement. And it was something in a lot of ways that people thought of the Enchanted Village as something that was not only unique and special, but with live children watching in some ways the man blow the glass, as well as, of course, the baker make cookies and cakes, and, of course, the ice cream smith making things such as ice cream sundaes, it was really not only interesting, but it was chronicled not just for Boston, but the entire United States, because Look Magazine was read not only in Boston, Massachusetts, but San Francisco and California. And in that way, we began to see in some ways that Jordan Marsh which eventually would expand and have 11 department stores throughout New England, was something in a lot of ways that was a trailblazer in creating these wonderful tableaus during the Christmas season. But it wasn't just Jordans. You had Jordan Marsh, Filene's, Gilchrist, Raymond's, Kennedy's. H.R. White. R.H. White. R.H. White. R.H. Stearns. You had Conrad and Chandler, Seacroft at Hollage, Ellen Slattery. Each of these department stores would also be decorated and with a beautiful illuminated facade, sometimes with, you know, two or three stories of white electric lights, Santa Claus in the window, as well as, of course, the interiors that were beautifully decorated. Going to town was something that was not just special, but before the advent of the suburban shopping mall, One could normally get things in smaller neighborhoods as well as smaller towns, but going into Boston was magical, and it made people realize in some ways that it wasn't just the department stores. It was that wonderful tableau that one saw on the Boston Common. It was the fact that there would be people ringing bells for the Salvation Army, and that many times music itself would be piped through the department stores and heard on the streets. It was a joyful time. But the memories that we share about it come down to us today. So whether it was our parents or grandparents that took us to town, 
we now can tell our children and grandchildren the wonderful stories of Boston in the late 19th and 20th century. You've spoken about Enchanted Village a number of times during the time I've known you, and I never really have been able to get a grasp on how magical it was. But there are, pic- there are photos in this book that give me, I think, an inkling. And it is, it's really just difficult to describe verbally. You kind of need to see a picture to understand how awesome, how outstanding it is. I, I'm looking at the picture with the sheep and the snowball. and the, Is that fun? Yes. And you know, how big, how much of an area did this cover? This well, you know, village? the Enchanted Village was on the top floor of the Annex. Now, you had to realize Jordan Marsh was divided by Avon Street, which no longer exists, but it was opposite Temple Place. Today, it's the site of the Lafayette Mall. But in that instance, the annex was a building that on the ground floor not only had the bakery, but on the top floor had an open space. So the Enchanted Village was one of the many things that they had done. They also did an animated circus with Hoffman-built figures. They also did things such as a Civil War 100th anniversary commemoration. There was a car show, which I spoke about at the Lars Anderson Museum last month. So in a lot of ways, people realized that the annex display space was something that you could only access by the elevator. So you would ascend the seven flights, and then, of course, when you arrived, you would then be there And, of course, at the end of the Enchanted Village, there were elves that would give you candy canes as you waited in line to see Santa Claus. So at the end of that, you then had to descend the seven flights of the escalator. And, of course, why not stop off and look at clothing or furniture or the bakery? Because the cookies that were on display at the bakery tableau at the Enchanted Village had the same cookies for sale in the bakery. Real deal. The gift shop had the real glass ornaments that the glassblower shop showed you. It was not only a wonderful thing that was a gift to the people of Boston in 1959, but it was also something that you too could take something of that home with you. Whether it was a photograph of your child or grandchild sitting on Santa Claus's lap, or maybe it was actually a box of Christmas Germanic-inspired cookies, or a box of Christmas ornaments for the tree. Each one of those things, though, perpetuated the memory that you had. And whether it was of the Enchanted Village, or maybe the fact that today one still puts that Christmas ornament that you purchased after having seen it at the Enchanted Village on the tree, you remember that continuity of 50 or 60 years. There's an Enchanted Village now, at Jordan's Furniture in Avon. Correct. To what degree is it Well, the original Hoffman, similar? You know, the original Hoffman built were from the 1959 period. Eventually, we would see in the 1980s that it would be discontinued by, of course, Jordan's. And by the period of 1996, Macy's, of course, had gotten rid of it. The pieces that are at Jordan's Furniture in Avon, Massachusetts, are the pieces that Mayor Menino commissioned that would eventually see them at the... Boston City Hall Plaza, and they date from the early 1990s. But of the original pieces, they disintegrated. I mean, at this point, they're over 60 years of age. But the idea was that they themselves were things that were really quite important. 
But today the enchanted village again gives us and our children and grandchildren that wonderful story that we knew as children. But it's also the fact that Jordans has connected their name with that of Jordan Marsh. And it's not just the fact that one can see the enchanted village of St. Nicholas in Avon, but you can also stop by and purchase a half a dozen Jordan Marsh blueberry muffins. Anthony Simarco and his book, Christmas Traditions in Boston. Anthony's with us, and there's a section in there called Boston's Christmas Trees or Christmas Trees of Boston. Well, you know, Christmas trees in the 19th century started off as tabletop trees, but in a lot of ways it was also the fact by the 20th century they became room-sized. In this book I have some, I think, fascinating pictures that actually show the Christmas trees themselves that were introduced by, of course, Charles Fallon. And Fallon himself, as I mentioned earlier, he was somebody who had come to this country and, you know, he basically taught at Harvard College. But in a lot of ways, he eventually embraced the Unitarian faith, and he became a minister. And I love the little pun, because he became the minister of the fallen church. (laughs) And the fallen church is something that still exists in Lexington, Massachusetts. They still have a Christmas tree sale, and every tree actually has a little history of Charles Fallen on the tree itself. But in the latter part of the 19th century, you'd see these trees that were not only decorated with, of course, wax tapers, but they'd have everything from Christmas toys, dolls, little drums, balls for boys. Um, You'd have little pole toys, horses and sheep. And they would eventually, in the 1860s and 1870s, grow to what eventually became room-sized trees. In this book, I show not only the fact of the children in front of the trees, sometimes even five stories, uh, five feet in height. But by the period of 1900, they were a tire room size, beautifully decorated, tinsel, electric lights, and of course the hand-blown ornaments, many of which came from Germany at that time, would just be incredible. So in some ways, the trees themselves became synonymous with the aspiring middle class, especially during the holidays, and they were always real trees. But by the period of the 1950s, they would actually even have trees that were made of silver. And during that period, there were aluminum trees that would actually have a revolving light that had four colors, and you would put that on and it would revolve with an electric light bulb to illuminate the silver tree, which usually had single-colored light bulbs. And then that way, it was something that was totally different. It was a cool mod tree. We had a silver tree when I was a child. I was allergic to evergreens at that time. These trees were something that were unique and special, but they were also trees that sometimes were very simple. They had strung popcorn, strung cranberries. Maybe they had paper chains made from construction paper. There were special items saved year after year, and they actually had a memory. And not only did they actually go on the tree, but there could be a story that would then be told to children. And it was something that they too knew the story within a few years. So Christmas trees, which would be sold at every street corner, it seemed, throughout the city, was centralized at Faneuil Hall in the period of the early 20th century, would have the gamut of trees that, yes, was still tabletop, but even became room-sized trees. And there's a photograph on page 86 
that shows some of the trees that were at least nine or 10 feet in height. So they were for very large houses. So I was really quite fascinated to read about the history of the evolution of the Christmas tree in the 19th and early 20th century. Do you have a Christmas stocking with your name on it? I bet you do. I do. It's in storage. But the thing was, when I was a very young child, if one went to Jordan Marsh, not only did one see the Enchanted Village, but of course visit Santa Claus, you could then have a red velvet stocking with a little, it was felt, but it was supposed to be fur. And your name would be written in Elmer's glue, and then they would do sprinkles of silver uh, foil on it. And of course my name was on it. You still have it? I still have it. It's somewhere, but um, I don't put it out so much. We have our trees up. um, Evergreens are done on the outside of the property and things of that sort. We have a single candle in every window. The nativity crashes are up, and they're fun. We have a Hummel one, and we have a handmade one. But I also have my grandparents' Hummel, uh, my grandparents' nativity crash that they had purchased in Paris, and they were made of chalk, and they're very small. So each of these things are really quite special. They, to me, represent something that I bring out every year, and I marvel at not only the fact that they represent something and, of course, were owned by people that I love that are no longer with us, but they kind of represent that Christmas tradition of every year celebrating something that was not only a family event, but something that was a shared Bostonian event. I don't. The only meaningful Christmas item that I have that's been passed down is my my grandmother was a knitter, as people were back in the day, and she knitted my father. She knitted everybody. Everybody got a stocking, and so father got one. My mother later got one, but uh, I still have my father's, which says nineteen twenty five on it. That's lovely. Yes. And I have one that's identical. With my name, we all we all got them. And right. I had to remember to hang them up. Happily, the wool seems to be a kind that the moths don't like, but it's one you know obviously one hundred percent wool. They didn't have it's any lovely. fake stuff then. Thank you so much for coming in, and Thank congratulations you. on the great response on your book, Christmas Traditions in Boston. Right now, go to a bookstore and get it. What do you got planned for the Christmas season? Well, well, I actually have to work on Christmas Eve, but the thing is, uh, we'll actually have friends at our house in Austerville. It's always wonderful to actually break bread and share a potent libation by the fireplace. But I think in a lot of ways, Christmas is really quite fun. It's not just the fact of knowing people that we love and they're great to see, but talking with family and friends. Thank you very much. And perhaps... We might share a uh, strong libation, maybe at the Red Hat or something I like would that. love that. All right. SWBZ. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.